Welcome to the Outpost Podcast. We're currently in a series focused on God's hospitality to us and through us. Our hope is that you're challenged and encouraged in your walk as a disciple of Jesus. Enjoy. I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit unusual, for me at least. I'm going to ask you not to turn to the book of Galatians as we start to talk about it just now. So Galatians is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul. So it was a letter written to this church, actually to a group of churches in modern-day Turkey. And in it, he hypes up the gospel. He gives a little bit of a clue as to what the gospel is at the very start, but basically the first chapter and a half, he spends more time hyping the gospel than he does explaining the gospel. And he gets stuck into these Galatians because they have abandoned the gospel and they've accepted another gospel. Not that there is another gospel, he tells us. And he says, if anyone, even myself, my traveling companions, or an angel from heaven, were to preach a gospel contrary to the one that I preach to you, let that person be cursed. And he repeats the same thing again. So he's pretty dead set on this. If anyone preaches a gospel other than what you heard from us, let that person be cursed. He then goes on to talk about how he received this gospel. It wasn't from people. It wasn't something that he was taught, but rather he received it directly from God. It was a revelation, like a direct download from God himself. And he reminds them about his former way of life in Judaism, how he persecuted the church of God, how he's advancing in Judaism beyond all of his countrymen. He's doing really, really well when it comes to being a good Jewish lad. But then everything changes. When he has this revelation of the gospel, he doesn't then go and compare it with others. He goes from where he was, so he was in Damascus, and instead of going back to Jerusalem where he'd come from, in order to compare what he understood the gospel as with those who were apostles before him and those who walked around with Jesus, he goes into Arabia, which makes no sense. And it's three years before he comes back to Jerusalem and he meets Peter and he meets James. And then it's 14 years later that he really goes in order to compare notes about the gospel. So 17 years later where he actually checks in and it turns out it's the same gospel. They have the same gospel. They've got a different mission, but the same gospel. And he's talking a bit about Peter. And then we arrive in chapter 2 of Galatians and verse 11. Perhaps you can put this one up on the screen for us, Riley, the one that's nice and blocked out. So this is the reason why I didn't want you to turn there, because I've got something for you to consider. But when Cephas came to Antioch, so Cephas is another name for Peter, Apostle Peter, the first named apostle in any list of the apostles that you find in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. He's like always first. He's not only one of the 12, but he's the most prominent of the 12. He's one of the three, the most prominent of the three. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for he... Dot, dot, dot. What did he do? 
What did Peter do? And then later on, you've got this thing of him leading others astray. Even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. So why did Peter stand condemned? And in what way was he and there later others deviating from the gospel? Have a chat with someone near you. What did he do? All right, what do we got? What was the issue? Issue was freedom. Any other thoughts? Old religious Jewish practices. Say that again. Something to do with the Gentiles. All right, let's let's have a look. If you can just couple forward. He regularly ate with the Gentiles. That was the problem. Here he was, as if he would just eat with the Gentiles like they were actual people. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. But then, after they arrived, he separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. I've been to a lot of parties in my time, but I tell you what, the circumcision party. Woo! Who you eat with is a big deal. Let's just go back to that previous slide and those two things that were underlined or the highlighted he stood condemned they were deviating from the truth of the gospel they are massive statements and the issue was that he stopped eating with certain people let's pray <laughs> i'm done i was going to sit down we're going to sing it's going to be great father we need your revelation. It is easy for us to spout different ideas when it comes to what the gospel is, but I ask that you would arrest our hearts with the truth of your gospel, that we would know you, that we would know what it is that you're calling us to do, and that we would live in such a way that we give you glory and honor, and we would live in such a way that we cause others to consider you and to come into your family. So we ask that you would have your way with us, in us, through us today. We want to see Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. So the gospel isn't articulated that clearly in the bit that I've referred to so far through most of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. And it begs the question, what is the gospel? If you had to summarize the gospel in one word, what would it be? Truth? I did say one word. Salvation, life. Freedom, all helpful answers. If I was to name one word, one name, it would be Jesus. What's the most prominent, common answer to any question that is asked in a church. Come on. If you were to try and summarize the gospel, if I was to try and summarize the gospel, 
chances are I would fall short in doing the gospel justice. The gospel is Jesus. Right? All he is is the gospel. We go back to the verse before what we're looking at. I'll now invite you to open up your Bibles to Galatians. If you've got something on your phone, there's Bibles down here in the aisle. Please grab one of those. But we've been looking at chapter 2 from verse 11. And chapter 2 verse 10 talks about the one thing, a very interesting thing, that um, Peter and co. had said to Paul about the gospel. Verse 10. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. If I was challenged to share the gospel and to write down, you know, keep it to a paragraph or keep it to a couple of sentences, I don't think I would include something about the poor, if I'm honest. But here is something they wanted to make sure was a part of what his ministry was, the focus of his ministry. And it's an interesting phrasing, like, remember the poor. It's not just like, oh, yeah, Tom, man, he's got it tough. And then you go on and keep doing Like, remember is to actually act upon the fact that you remember something. But that that would be central to the message and central to what it looks like to live out the gospel, that you would remember the poor. And as we've just looked at here, who you eat with is actually central to the gospel because it says here they were deviating from the truth of the gospel by not continuing to eat um, with the, the Gentiles. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, or Peter, in front of everyone, if you, who are a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter had a very significant moment that happened to him on a rooftop. A rooftop experience. He was praying and he saw a vision. And that vision contained a blanket that gets lowered down and there's a whole bunch of animals in it. He hears a voice from heaven, and the animals that were in it were all not kosher. These were unclean animals for Jewish people. And a voice from heaven says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, nothing impure has ever touched my mouth. And then he hears that same voice from heaven saying, do not call what God calls pure unclean. Apparently once was not enough. It happens three times. And then Peter has some visitors that invite him to go. And it leads to the first conversion of Gentile people. So this is Cornelius. You might remember the story. It's Acts 10. And Cornelius sees a vision of an angel. The angel doesn't tell him the gospel. You know, There's this theme of hyping up the gospel rather than just delivering it. So the angel says, not here's what you need to know, but rather go get Peter and Peter will tell you what you need to know because God consistently works through people. So Peter comes and he's in the house of a Gentile man 
and he preaches to a bunch of non-Jews, a bunch of Gentiles. And as he's preaching to them, the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a very similar way to what the Holy Spirit had come upon Peter and the others on the day of Pentecost, that day where they were speaking in tongues and declaring the wonders of God in all these different languages. And so because of this, they're like, I guess we should baptize them in water as well. And so baptize in water. And then chapter 11 of Acts is Peter defending that decision to baptize a bunch of Gentiles. Because there's this council that's called out. It's like, oh, I don't know if that was really good. We shouldn't really be doing that. And he explains what happened. They're like praising God. Wow, mind blowing. God loves Gentiles too. So here, same Peter. So Peter's obviously changed his practices and he's living a different life and it's all going well until certain men from James come along and then he's more concerned about these certain men from James and what they think than he is about actually loving these other people. And so Peter gets called out by Paul. He opposes him to his face. It's no small thing. And then I'm curious, out of the Bibles that you've got there, you might, you might notice that, um, that Peter says, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 15, who has inverted commas continuing from verse 15 onwards? Does anyone have that in the translation they're looking at? Some translations do. The most common is to not have that. The most common is to say that Paul has only said that one little bit and the rest of it is just Paul explaining to the Gentiles. But it's not really clear because they didn't use inverted commas in ancient Greek. And so it's not clear whether... This continues on to be what Paul said to Peter or if this is now just Paul addressing the Gentiles. Are you with me? But one argument why people think that he did continue saying this to Peter is verse 15 says, We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The Galatian church was not all Jews. And so it would make sense if he's speaking to Peter and he's saying that. So interesting, that um, Gentile sinners. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You've got a couple of significant things that are going on in this passage just here. It seems like for Peter a really big thing had been dealt with, massive thing had been dealt with. Suddenly, he realized that the gospel was for the Gentiles as much as it was for the Jews. And so his whole way of living, his practice, shifted and changed as a result of that. But he was still susceptible to intimidation. So he had people who didn't have that same revelation And he would actually change his practice based on their perception. Whether or not they said it to him, he was influenced by them. 
And here he is. We are not Gentile sinners. I feel challenged as I read this about what are the categories and what are the things that I have in my mind where I will discount certain people? What are the things that would stop me from feeling like I can articulate the gospel and articulate different things that I think come out of the gospel? I had an interesting experience Saturday night, Saturday night before last, where I was invited along as part of the staff at McLaren Vale Primary School to Bogan Bingo. Anyone, anyone ever been to Bogan Bingo? I see zero hands. So I got a great mullet wig, so I'm like, okay, I'll go. And it was a great chance to connect, but in the lead up to going, Christy was chatting to someone else about it. And this other person said, oh, that is so crude. Like, I was thinking, I can't believe they're allowed to say those things in public. And so here I was, as a fairly well-known pastor at the school, I'm like, how's this going to go down? Bogan bingo, heaps of crudeness, um, and I'm sitting there, how am I going to respond? What's it going to be like? And it was an interesting experience. I tell you. <laughs> and, but my temptation in that moment when Christy sent that message was just like, I'm not going to go. Like, it's going to be awkward, it's going to be weird, um, and I'm just going to check out and not push into the relationships that are there and see this opportunity to connect in with people. Um, but yeah, chose to go, and it was worse than I thought it would be. Um, and there was some super awkward stuff. But, you know, every time that they drew one of the, the balls out of the thing, there was like a different vulgar statement that was made. And most of them were supposed to be like call and response. And so he calls out something and everyone else like has to respond. Um, and I'm just like, I'm not going to say those things. Um, but still just chose to enter in that. I'm, I'm going to be there. Um, and then there was this dancing competition and I got dobbed in from my table as the most bogan male. So I had to dance with, um, yeah, dance solo in front of everyone. Um, I do this thing. So I won the dancing competition. <laughs> Represent. <laughs> Demonstrate. <laughs> it started like this and I loved it. Penguin dance, it, it just it works a treat. So start off really subtle and then go over the top. And um, yeah, it works really well. But for, for me coming into that environment, it's, there's so many different conflicting things that are going on. And the temptation is to withdraw, keep my head down. Uh, the temptation is to not go. Um, but just to go, I choose to push into that, try and stay out of as much as I can. Like, I'm not going to repeat the things they repeat. I'll try and not, yeah, engage in, in certain things, but still to, to be there and, and endure the awkwardness uh, for the sake of a relationship, I think is, is really important. And it's easy to write off the hosts because of the things they were saying, but they were in character. These are, are two people... 
um, who had a job to do and they got into character thoroughly <laughs> and did their job. Um, but I had an opportunity to talk to one of the staff at the end of the night um, and she just shared her heart and shared some big stuff um, that happened for her when it comes to the Christian faith and it was a really good connecting point, an opportunity I would have missed if I hadn't have been there. Um, and yeah, just taking a moment in order to um, yeah, say yes to an awkward invitation. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. My challenge to myself and to each of us is what categories of people do we reject? Where would we allow intimidation to stop us from entering in because of how it looks? You know, Jesus ate with prostitutes and sinners. He didn't sin with sinners, but he joined them and was willing to be looked down upon because he entered into their life. What does that look like for us? What does that look like 2022 here in South Australia, over in New Zealand? Like, what does it look like for us in order to, to live that out? Not to be tarnished by the world, but not to withdraw from it. Verse 16. Here's the amazing truth and reality of the gospel. Verse 16 gives us pretty good understanding of what the gospel is. Someone could pray for my throat. I'd really appreciate it. I'm really struggling at the moment. Thank you. I was going to get a drink, but filling it up is even better. <laughs> and yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the Lord, no human being will be justified. That is packed. There's a lot of stuff in there. I think it's pretty well known amongst Christians that this is true. That we are not saved by works of the law. But it is so easy for us to think that it is to do with our baptism or to do with our church attendance or to do with our Bible reading or to do with our prayer life but we are not saved by any of these things the thing that saves us is our faith in Jesus which will be expressed by fellowshipping with other Christians by reading the scriptures and it goes both ways so we will express our faith by doing those things and our faith will be increased as we do those things but that's not the means by which we are saved. It is simply our faith in Christ that saves us. And I am on the exact same level of need as my Bogan Bingo hosts. I'm on the exact same level of need as those members of staff that just embraced it wholeheartedly. We are on the same level. I am not better than them. We have this issue where, for some of us, and it probably is true on both sides for many of us, 
It's probably true that there are people that you would be intimidated to invite to your house because you do not think that your house is good enough. You do not think that what you have to offer is good enough for them. But it's probably also true that there are people that you would not think to invite over because you do not think they're good enough. Probably wouldn't articulate that, but the reality is you wouldn't think they were worthy of your time. Wouldn't think they were worthy of that kind of investment. But we are all on the same level. The Jews had the Gentiles. The Rome or the Greeks had the barbarians. Like everyone that isn't a Jew, Gentile. Everyone that isn't a Greek, barbarian. You know, this dismissive attitude of like, oh, it's them. They are not worth as much as me and us. This thing of hospitality that we are focusing on at the moment, basic definition of hospitality, that Greek word hospitality is the love of a stranger. When we practice hospitality, we are making someone less like a stranger and more like family. Hospitality is costly. I do want to give a shout out to Dave. Dave is en route to South Africa right now. Um, he preached last Sunday and he told us, you know, stories of costly hospitality that had amazing impact. Like, come live with me kind of hospitality that resulted in people coming to faith in Jesus. We are called to sacrificial hospitality. We are not called to offer hospitality to every single person we ever see. But we are called to reorient our life so that we are able to practice generous hospitality and so that we don't write off any one person or any group of people. And we see the stuff come up at different times and in different ways. It might be that you have someone who approaches you that's just a really close talker. It might be someone that approaches you and sits next to you on the bus and invades your space. It might be sitting next to you on the footy and they're really loud and annoying or they smell. Whatever it is, there's things that just bring out that sensitivity in us and that judgment and we just put this stuff and these categories that are not Christ's categories for people but are our, our way to simplify our life and to mean we don't have to invest and actually find out who someone really is. We write them off. We are called to offer generous hospitality. And if our current schedule means that we cannot do that, we need to reorient our lives. We have busy seasons and stuff, sure, but that just tends to continue on. Busyness begets busyness. That was a weird phrase, but we want to reorient our lives so that we practice generous hospitality and it's not the insta-worthy hospitality that we're focused on, it's the real hospitality where you meet a need. So I want to show a slide and this is from the census last year, 26% of households have one single person. As of the census last year, over a quarter of households in our country have one single person. And 11% of households are a single parent. So a single parent families. 
And so you add those together, 37%, 37%, you've got a single adult with no other adults in the house, if you get what I mean. It's a pretty high percentage of people, and it's not the only opportunity for someone to experience loneliness. And there's plenty of people who would be in that 37% that are not lonely. But there are plenty who would be desperately lonely. And plenty who find themselves in a lot of community that still find themselves lonely. My point is this. There are people all around us that are in need. It is easy for us to be completely oblivious to the needs of those around us. There's 6,000 South Australians who are currently homeless. If there will be times, like Nick's going to preach on the Good Samaritan in a couple of weeks. And that's a beautiful illustration of seeing need in front of you and then responding to that need with generous hospitality. But there are plenty of times where there is someone in such a desperate situation but they are behind closed doors. And you will never see them as you walk the streets. You will certainly never see them when you're in your own home. And it takes that awkward knocking on their front door, I bake some muffins, here you go, introducing yourself. It takes actually doing something to begin a relationship with people to actually find out about those needs. And it won't usually happen straight away. Sometimes you meet someone for the first time and you hear everything. But often it takes a while. And it's the reorientation of your life. There was an activity I decided not to do today, um, but one that you may want to have a go at. And that is to consider who are the eight dwellings, or who are the people that live in the eight dwellings closest to you? What are their names? What are some basic facts about them? And the next level down, what are their hopes and dreams and fears? To actually have a map of your immediate surroundings. How well do you know your neighbours? How much investment do you put into, into that? Let's practice generous hospitality, but let's also get to know people in our, in our midst so that we can practice generous hospitality with them. Because the reality is we are all completely dependent upon his grace. We are not justified by what we do. These things that we can do are not the way that we then um, gain God's favour. It is completely his grace. Raise your hand if you actually prayed for me when I asked you to pray for me before. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Accountability. <laughs> Verse 17. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. Here we have the reality of ongoing sin, the reality of different struggles and things that can come up. If we are justified by Christ and then we sin again, what happens? 
we confess and he forgives us again. Our salvation is not dependent upon our ongoing perfection. But this next part, if I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. It points us to a beautiful passage in Ephesians which speaks about what Christ has done. The last part of chapter 2 of Ephesians and the first part of chapter 3 talk about this dynamic between the Jews and the Gentiles. And we're told that Jesus has abolished the dividing wall of hostility that stood between the Jew and the Gentile, where it is hopeless for them to come together. He has abolished this dividing wall of hostility. And for us, we get to join in that abolishing of those walls when we refuse to put labels and categories on people and say that, nah. And sometimes it can be, like if you're a Christian here tonight, it can be a fellow Christian who just believes something different than you do about a certain topic and just write them off and go, nah, they're one of those sort of Christians and refuse to actually engage with them and get to know them for who they are. It could be that it's just someone on a different political um, stance to you. And so because they believe this, you just write them off. There's a, a book that I'm reading at the moment called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Has anyone read it? It's Rosaria Butterfield. So she was a lesbian, she was an English professor, and she was writing a book, and in this book she wanted to have a real crack at Christianity, but she wanted to do her research, she wanted to really do this properly. And so she reaches out, she reaches out, um, <clears throat> seeking some help, she gets a generous, actually she writes a scathing article about Christianity in a newspaper, gets a generous response to this scathing article, um, and an invitation to dinner by a pastor. <coughs> She's like, all right, I'll go. He can be my unpaid research assistant. That'll work. <laughs> Goes to his house for dinner and is just captivated by what happens over this meal. Then starts going weekly to this guy's house. Um, and then, yeah, becomes a Christian. Uh, she lives... She's actually adopted multiple teenage kids that's very rare to actually include someone in your family that's the ultimate act of hospitality isn't it treating someone like family um and yeah she's written a really really helpful book but just this thing of um including someone at at great personal cost um it's huge A lady called Rosaria Butterfield with a book, who's written a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Um, verse 19. I'll, I'll finish off. I just want to read these last three verses because it really does all come down to this. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. It's a 
huge statement to finish. If righteousness comes through the law, if we could actually be right before God based on how we live, there was no need for Jesus to die. Jesus is the one who loved us and gave himself for us. He has brought us into his family, the most generous act of hospitality. And it's complete because we are actually a part of his family. And our goal is that our lived experience would actually match up with the reality of being a part of his family. And so we put ourselves in a position where we get to know him, get to know his love for us. And that is what leads us to be hospitable to others. His inclusion of us leads us to include others. But it doesn't always work that way in reality. We're not always going to feel included. We're not always going to feel like, oh, this is the thing I want to do right now, is include somebody else. Because it's costly and it's hard and it's often really awkward. But to include someone when we're not feeling like including them is a statement to ourselves. It's a statement to the heavenlies. It's a statement that this is what has been done for me, whether I feel like it or not right now, this is a declaration of what has been done for me and I'm including someone else so that they've got a better chance of understanding what's been done for them by their Heavenly Father. I'm going to pray. Father, I want to thank you for your love for us. I want to thank you for including us, for adopting us. Thank you that we get to be a part of your family. We get to know you. We get to walk with you. I ask that we would be a people who include. I ask that we would proactively invite people into families to come and to join us, whether it's for a meal, whether it's to actually spend some time living with us. Whatever the needs are, Lord, may we be people who meet those needs. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. My dad became a Christian uh, when he was 19 or 20. And he's one of 12 kids. And it's been a very interesting ride with his 11 siblings over the years. And one sister of his that has had some experience of faith said a little while ago that she would never set foot in a church again and just before um, so dad's part of the morning congregation here and uh, he showed me these um, little I don't know seen those little communion packs um, and he was taking a few of those over to his sister's house and whilst she wasn't setting foot in a church he was taking the church to her and just this beautiful act of hospitality and not forcing anything upon her but also not taking a declaration that she made as gospel that she was never going to engage with Jesus again and going okay you're not going to set foot in a church again but here's a way um, to be able to engage with Jesus and so I believe that's that's happening uh, as we speak and I love those moments that that we take and my personal experience is that when we share with others the thing that we're sharing with others is strengthened for ourselves. And as we share the gospel with someone else, the gospel becomes more real to us as well, and it reminds us. Um, I want to read one more bit. 
of Galatians. This is from chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Raise your hand if you're a son of God. I appreciate it. It's weird for the women. But the reason it says sons here and not a child of God, it would be way more gender inclusive to say a child of God. It's been talking about when you were children, you were enslaved under the elemental principles of the world, but you are now a son. The reason that this, in a relatively inclusive language Bible, the reason it's remained son is for two key reasons. One of them is still relevant today. I got five kids. There's one of those that's more likely than the other four to always bear my name. Even today, it is more likely for a son to keep his father's name than for a daughter. All right? You will always bear the name of your king, who is also your father. Always bear his name. The second one is that if you were a son in this time when this was written, you could expect an inheritance that a daughter would not. You will always bear his name and you have an inheritance. And that is a beautiful thing. This continues. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. It is Jesus within us. If you picture a child who's standing on the edge of a pool and the dad is in the water ready to receive and that child has no qualms at all about just leaping off the edge of the pool, even if they can't swim, into their father's arms. How much more confidence does Jesus have of his father's love for him? He is completely confident of that. And it is Jesus who comes within us and calls out Abba, which just means daddy. Daddy. That same level of confidence is what we get to have in our Father. He has rescued us. He has adopted us. We are a part of His family. The more we understand our inclusion, the more we will include others. How good is what he has done for us? How good that we are all sons and how good that we're all a part of the bride. Just if any of the boys were feeling smug, we're part of the bride. Hey, lads? We just got to all deal with it. What it means is so significant and it is so good. I've got a slide that I want you to consider. I want you to have a look at this final slide. What does it mean to you to be a son and how do you receive your adoption as a son of God how does that actually make a difference tomorrow and the next day what in an ideal world would hospitality look like in a year's time for you how are things different how as I look forward a year's time I want there to have been more than two of my neighbours that we've had a meal with 
I don't want there still to be a mystery neighbour next door that I've never met. I want to push into those spaces. What does it look like for you? And what's a step you can take towards that this week? Who do you know that needs hospitality? How can you help? How can you better get to know the needs of your community? Have you considered fostering? Can you help someone that already is? You know, what can we do in these spaces? Let's not just assume it's not for us. There was a, an ad on, the, on Life FM a year or two ago, and it started off with something like, you could never sell everything and move overseas, so give money to people that have. It didn't say that, but it started like that. It was like ridiculous thought that you could ever upend your life and do something like that. So here's a way that you can be involved in something else. Let's not discount what God can do. Lift my hands up, lay my whole life down. Let's actually mean it and go, Lord, would you tell me what that looks like today and tomorrow? And so you don't have to follow those questions, but I do encourage you, whether it's in here or over dinner, just to have a chat about this thing of hospitality. What does it look like for you now? How do you see it changing? And what are you going to do about it in the immediate future? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours and mine now and forever. Hallelujah and amen.